This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Let me see first who who is here. Let me browse through this pages for a second. I'm very glad to see you all. And I would first like to thank Abbot David and the Tanto Nancy for inviting me to give this talk. And would also like to express my deep, deep gratitude to my teacher, Rinso Ed Sadisan, for his guidance and for his wise, compassionate teachings on, on this path. As Matt said, um, my name is Sozan, and I serve this community as a president of the San Francisco Zen Center. And I'm very, very grateful to be here and be here with you today and sharing the space, this space of practice. I first came here to San Francisco Zen Center in 2013. And in 2014, I did my first practice period first Ango here at City Center. And I would say that that actually started my process of becoming a full resident here at San Francisco Zen Center. Um, after, after coming here and after 2014, it became, became very important in my life to devote my whole energy, my whole time to studying the self and to deepen in Zen practice. So I decided with, with my wife, Paula, to come here and become a permanent resident. And, and this has been an amazing journey so far. Um, and as I said before, I'm, I'm very grateful to my teachers and also to the Sangha and everybody and everything who supports me on this Bodhisattva path. And even though my Zen practice started uh, within another lineage many years before I came to San Francisco Zen Center, before I moved here as a resident, I was engaged with the world in another way, in, in my other life, as we used to say, uh, we used to say here, um, that's what, what we did before becoming a full-time student. So what I did before becoming a full-time student was that I worked in advertisement. I was an advertiser. After graduating from school, uh, from high school, I studied business administration in the Catholic University in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. That's where, that's where I'm from. And after that, I started working on marketing for, for big multinational consumer good companies um, in, in, in different areas of marketing. And after several years of working in these big, big corporations, in 1999, I founded my own advertising company. Uh, and in time, I opened offices in Buenos Aires, in Mexico City, in Barcelona. And this was my professional life, my work, what I did for 15 years. And honestly, I, I enjoyed marketing and advertising very much, actually. Um, and, and I think I was more or less good at it. Um, and I learned many, many things. I'm, I'm nowadays convinced 
that that this part of my life being being an advertiser being in marketing for those many years has been kind of instrumental i would say um, in leading me to the place i am today in my practice uh, when i look back i i can see how all those years are so important today or to who i am today because you know it is said that a big part of Zen practice, or we think a big part of Zen practice, is to study need, to study craving, to study attachment. And as a matter of fact, many of you are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. In, in the Second Noble Truth, which is the truth about the cause of suffering, the Buddha says that the cause of suffering is dissatisfaction, need, craving, attachment. And I, I see this to be fully true. And probably still think that one of the best ways to fully understand need is to study the Four Noble Truths. So if you, want, if you want to understand need, you need to study the Four Noble Truths. Or, and, to work in marketing and advertisement for 20 years. Because my, my job then was basically understanding as much as I could about need and the satisfaction of need. And of course, to try to fulfill that need with something or a service or a product. And I got really good at creating needs and fulfilling them. Your next pair of tennis shoes or whatever. And in hindsight, I think this, this exploration as an advertiser was one of the main things that brought me to Buddhism, really. Because I, I could see how not feeling ever satisfied and the way we relate to need and craving is such an important part of our lives. I could see it, could see it as an advertiser. It was all about need and craving. So, so probably because of this, many really fundamental questions started to arise in my mind. Questions about the human aspect of need. And then actually when I started practicing Zen Buddhism in the mid-2000s, kind of a new world around the concept of need um, happened, uh, appeared, um, and, and, and therefore the satisfaction of need and the understanding of need. And I started relating these, these two. All my, my study of need through my professional career and what Buddhism was bringing forth, particularly in the Four Noble Truths. And since need is such an important part of our, of our exploration, of our experience, of our path of practice, this is what I'm going to talk about to you today. I'm going to talk about need, craving, and how we are usually never satisfied. So let me tell you a short story. Um, when I was in marketing, at one point in my, in my career, I worked as a brand manager for one of the main brands of shampoo uh, in, the, in the country's, in Argentina's marketplace, a very important shampoo brand. And as we always did regularly, I met with the sales team and the research and development team 
to come up with a next product. You know, that, 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 what would be our next shampoo in our line of shampoos? The new and improved, a new iteration of new and improved version of, of our shampoo. And at this particular time, we didn't have a clear idea of what we wanted, of what, what could be a good shampoo, a new and improved shampoo to launch. So as you do many times in marketing, we conducted a market research with a group of shampoo users and a group of shampoo non-users to have a deeper insight of what was important to them. What is important to people when we're talking about their shampoo? Actually, their lives. We start by big picture. And we had people sitting in these focus groups. You might know about this. You might have seen them in the movies or you might be you might participate in one, uh, you know, with a, with a mirror in the wall and that it's not actually a mirror, but it's a whole bunch of marketing folks behind this glass watching uh, what's going on. You know what I mean? So there we were behind this, this mirror, this glass. And to make a long story, a long story short, at one point we asked people what was really, but really important to them. What, what is really important to you in your life? Just name anything. And of course, many things were expressed about this. Um, this is important. That is important. But then one person said something that was really important to him and that this was air, air, air. That without air, he would die. And, and I'm not sure if, if he was teasing or what, but... But I remember that actually he seemed kind of dead serious. Air is very important to me. Of, of course, the rest of the people agreed in the room. Say, yeah, of course, who, who wouldn't? So why, why is this? And, and why is air important to this, to this person, right? And he said, well, basically, um, I might need a lot of other things, but this is one need that if I don't have, the rest don't make sense. If I don't have air, I die. Well, okay, we concluded. It seems like air is important to people. Yeah, and, and it came out of a further analysis that actually what was important or what they really appreciated about air was oxygen. Not so much air, but it was oxygen. Oxygen is important air, but oxygen is really important. It's the oxygen in the air that keeps us alive. So our next question to the research and development team was, okay, so if oxygen is so important, if oxygen means life, is there any way in which we can have a new shampoo formula with more oxygen? Sounded like a great idea. And the answer was, oh yeah, of course, we'll, we'll make it happen. Will it make a real difference in the actual performance of the shampoo? Uh, maybe, uh, it's a bit more tricky. Uh, probably not the point. What is important here is that oxygen is important. Oxygen matters to people. Oxygen is life. So as you can imagine already, probably, we launched the new and improved version of our shampoo with more oxygen. Actually, this became one of our top selling shampoos for a long time. New and improved shampoo with more oxygen because oxygen is life. 
and you really want life and volume for your hair. And of course, you would, well, you would definitely need this shampoo. It just makes sense. And there you go, another need fulfilled. More oxygen in your shampoo. Who doesn't need that? You know, mission accomplished. So what is it that we really need? And what do we really want? Do we need shiny and great hair with a lot of volume or do we need to feel beautiful? What is it? Do we need to feel beautiful or do we actually need the feeling of being accepted by people around us because of our beauty? And do we need to feel accepted or do we actually need the sense of safety we get from this acceptance? Or is it about self-esteem? So we start with a hair. We start with a whatever result, this shampoo with more oxygen will give you to your hair. But actually there are layers and layers of need. And some we can see very clearly and some are more deep. And you can get more and more deep. And, and we can continue going down this rabbit hole, deep. We won't go there right now, but, but you get the point. There, there are many layers of need. It starts with, yes, I want my hair to be shiny, but actually I want to be, look beautiful, but actually I want to feel secure, safe, united, loved. So but this, is, this is very important to understand, I think. Need in and of itself is neither a good or bad thing. You know, craving is different, and we'll get back to craving later. But need is not something that we would judge in and of itself. The person in the focus group uh, said he needed air, and I wouldn't argue with that, you know, as being good or bad. It's just a need, a basic need for that matter, air, oxygen. The, the issue here is where this need actually comes from, what we could call the source of the need or the want. And understanding what is our deep relation to this need is very important. So we could classify or determine the source or origin of the need in many ways. But for today, and to make things simple, I will say that needs usually come um, or can be born from three distinct places they can arise from a place of basic survival, what we call basic needs. They can also come from a place of values, or they can come from a place of karma. You know, like the guy in the focus group, if I don't have air, I die. Yes, absolutely. This is a need that comes from a place of survival. It's a basic need like shelter or food. And for those who are familiar, this is kind of a marketing concept, but for those who are familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of need pyramid, it's a pyramid that has a hierarchy of, of human needs. The basic things you need in life, which are classified according to this person Maslow as basic are safety, biological and psychological needs, basic needs. So that's one, one type of need. It's one classification of need. 
But then there are needs that come from a place of value. Uh, I chose to name it that way, but could, when I explain this, you'll understand. Um, this is what I, what I might need, for example, when I need justice in the world or being respected or um, peace. Um, it's the things that are important to me because of my values. Um, it could be many things, but they're not basic, but they're very important to me, according to my values. Um, and sometimes we call these aspirations, not, not needs. Things that are really important to you. But what, what I want to really focus today are the needs that arise from karma. And we just had a whole 10 week practice period that ended a week ago or so with Abbot David, where he taught about karma here at Beginner's Mind Temple. So those who participated in this practice period will probably appreciate this. The needs and wants that arise from our karma. Because basically we are conditioned beings. We know that. Our mandates, society, our family, our culture, our life experience, our language. Everything that we are is conditioned by how we got here into our present being in relation to everything else. And whatever we need and how we need it is very much also defined by our conditioned self, by our karma. And this is what I mean then by this wants or needs that derive from karma. They are the needs that arise from our habitual patterns and tendencies. They are the results of our actions in our life. You know, the unique and particular way we perceive the world are those needs that arise from, from there, from karma, from our conditioned self. And again, I want to go back to this. Need, need is not in itself something good or bad. But then, when it arises from karma, then we probably need to take a closer look. When need arises from our conditioned self, we need to stop and, and look. Why do we need what we need? And when I use the word need, I also mean the word, the word want. Right? Why do we want what we want? So exploring our karma, understanding our conditioned self can really help us understand better and understand more deeply the origin of our wants and needs by exploring our karma. And then through that exploration, understand why we want this and we don't want that, or why we need this and we don't need that. And, and at the end of the day, to, to get to the real point here is how the way we want and need, how the way we pick and choose can be conducive to what we know as dukkha, which can be translated as suffering or a sense of dissatisfaction in life. No, Four Noble Truths. The truth of dukkha, the existence of suffering, dissatisfaction in life. So to study the link between some of our needs, especially those needs that arise from karma and our sense of dissatisfaction and suffering, 
is what we're talking about here. There is a, a very well-known text in, 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 in Buddhism and, and in Zen called the Xingxing Ming. And maybe many of you have read this before. This, this text uh, sheds some light on this matter. It's attributed to the third patriarch of Zen called Jinji Zenkan, or if you know him in Japanese, Kanchi Sozan. And actually it's considered to be the first Chinese Zen document that we know of, the, the very first Chinese document we know of. In, in one of the paragraphs of the Xingxing Ming, the teacher Kanchi Sozan says, attaining the way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. If you have neither aversion nor desire, you'll thoroughly understand. A hair's breadth difference is a gap between heaven and earth. I'm going to say that again. Attaining the way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. If you have neither aversion nor desire, you'll thoroughly understand. A hair's breadth difference is a gap between heaven and earth. Marvelous. I should have had that printed in my office when I was in advertising. My understanding of, of what the master Jinji Zenkan is teaching here is not to be attached to our needs, basically. No? Both aversion and desire are a way of attachment. So he says, if you have neither aversion nor desire, you'll thoroughly understand. And what I think this might mean is that, you know, in your life, you should not be regulated or should not be directed by your wants. Not you won't have them, but you are not um, directed by your wants. You, know, you don't let need and want be in the driver's seat of your life. And as the teacher says, if you can accomplish this, the way, the path is not difficult. Easier said than done, I guess. And I say easier said than done because as I first learned as an advertiser, and later I corroborated as a, as a Buddhist, the need that arises from karma are really deeply engraved in who we are and the way we live our life. It takes a lot of practice and commitment to really understand the depth of what gives life to our wants. All those layers I was talking about. You know, what, where those needs come from. And as I said earlier, what we usually perceive and relate to is an outer layer of the want or need in this layers I'm talking about. You know, we need a new phone, you know, the latest version. And, and you think, oh yeah, I, I, I want, I need the new iPhone 25 or whatever. And, you know, you, you do need, you, you do want that new iPhone. But probably what you really need is to feel that you're maybe seen as tech savvy, or maybe it's just about the sense of you know, safety that comes from status, or maybe 
The reason might be that you fear your old phone will be obsolete in no time and then you'll be disconnected from the world. Who knows? These things run really, really deep. And what is behind whatever is shown in the surface as a want or a need can be very primal and really not on our radar. And most likely in most cases, um, and at least you know, if not most of the cases that come from karma, the, the most fundamental reason that we need things that we want things, if we go deep, deep, deep in those, in those layers, is usually fear and uncertainty. Fear and uncertainty are one of the most fertile grounds for the seeds of want and need to grow. It might show as oxygen in your shampoo or a new iPhone, but, but really, if, if we go deeper, there's usually a, an important component, if not a basic component of fear and uncertainty. Because our needs might show up in all kinds of different ways, right? Like, you know, not being respected or uh, fear of being wrong or, or even as you go deeper, the primal fear of scarcity, of not having, not having enough, or just a basic fact of not knowing, which is a fear that derives from uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen next. So if you forgive me for paraphrasing Jin uh, Saint-Germain a bit here, uh, let's go back to the Hin Sing Ming. I'm going to change it a, a tad. Attain the way is not difficult. Just avoid being controlled by need. If you have neither fear nor doubt, you'll thoroughly understand. A hair's breadth difference is a gap between heaven and earth. Of course, one thing you can do is just to restrain from certain needs, right? We say, okay, great. So there are needs that arise from karma. There needs to arise, and through this karma, as we go deeper, um, we can see that there's fear, that there's uncertainty. So what do I do, right? And as I say, one thing that one sometimes da does is, is restrain oneself from certain things, you know? Um, so you work in ways that will help you be less impulsive when you want or you need something. And as we say in advertising, don't let them think twice or they won't need it. Because reflection is a great antidote to need. If you can respond instead of reacting to an urge, you might find yourself not needing or not really wanting something you thought you might. That's why responding to whatever arises is so important here. And then you might still think or feel you want it. You might choose to restrain yourself, saying, well, no, not now, or not this. 
And this is this is important and, and, and it's great. Most certainly we should be part of anyone's practice. But also to understand that while, while we're doing that, we're kind of working on the surface here, on the most visible expression of the need. And again, this is a very good thing to do. You know, yes, respond, don't react to your needs, control yourself to the extent that you can. But in some ways, it is good as also good, you know, taking ibuprofen if you have a fever. It, it, it's, it's important, but it's also important to investigate further, to try to find the real reason why you have a fever, to try to find the real reason why this need arises, this want arises. So it's the same thing with needs. It's, it's great to really reflect on them at the more visible level and act maybe to the extent that one can at that level, but it's also very important to go deeper. You know, and to find the more intimate reasons you want what you need. Why is it that you still want more oxygen in your shampoo? Because if you don't do that, then this first layer of need keep popping up uh, from everywhere. Because we, we're not attending, we're not going to what's really creating this, this need. That's, that's why it's so important. Yes, you know, um, if there is a weed, you might cut the weed, but you also might want to understand what's the composition of the ground and the reason why those weeds are, are growing. Here, for example, in the temple where I live in Beginner's Mind Temple, we actually have a, a real opportunity to explore our wants and needs. It's, it's part of, of what we do, a big part of what we do. You know? We live some, somewhat of a frugal life, yes, and we, and I think, I believe that's an important part of our practice. Um, and because I, I say it's an important part of our practice because through that we examine what it means not getting everything we want. You know, not having everything the way we wish it was. We usually eat what's being offered. We follow forms and rituals. And all this is in a way designed to give us the opportunity to explore the self, to understand our karmic conditioning. Let me give you an example. For example, I wish I could sleep in the morning and wake up later. Um, but actually I'm expected to be in the meditation hall at five in the morning. So in this way, I'm confronted, confronted with my own self, with my own karma in the action of waking up in the morning. This is a good example because it brings to my mind something that Suzuki Roshi said once to his students. He said, to get up when you hear the bell is the most important practice for us. The moment you hear the bell, you should get up. To get up when you hear the bell is the most important practice for us. The moment you hear the bell, you should get up. He said that in, sometime in 1969. So this is what Suzuki Roshi said to his students, I think. Let go of your wants and needs and just get up. Just say yes to practice, get up. And I really appreciate the clarity with which Suzuki Roshi explains this. Because he doesn't say that to get up when you hear the bell is an important part of our practice. He actually says it's 
the most important practice for us. Nothing else. The most important practice for us. He seems to be saying, there is nothing more important than the wake-up bell. If you understand this, you will understand the way. So the bell rings and you wake up. And needless to say, what comes after the wake-up bell here, Zazen, meditation, is a fundamental opportunity to see deeper into the self and to observe those needs and attachments. You know, the dropping of the body and mind that happens in Zazen, where everything is dropped, that everything also includes or can include our needs. So maybe what Suzuki Roshi is saying here is, when you hear the bells in your life, let go, let go of your wants. Just get up, wake up. When you hear the bells, wake up. This is our practice. When you hear the bell, wake up. You know, if this is not Zen in a nutshell, I'm not sure what is. So I have to thank, deeply thank Suzuki Roshi for that. And of course, Suzuki Roshi's advice can apply to anyone, anywhere, right? Not just practitioners living in a temple or a monastery. You know, when, when you get up to work or to sit Zazen with your probably online group now, or if you're lucky, maybe you have a sitting group right now, well, you just get up. You know, you can explore frugality. You can observe your needs wherever you are and see what arises, what comes up in your practice. When you hear the bell in your life, just get up, wake up. So the question here is, was it so hard to let go of our wants? Was it so difficult not to be driven by the needs born from our karma? Why is it so difficult to get up and stay sleeping? You know, what is really behind whatever manifests in our conscious mind and needs? And we're talking about before us, you know, fear. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, also known as the Flower Ornament Sutra, there is a passage where a boy named Sudana goes on a spiritual journey, visiting a total of 53 ideal bodhisattvas or bodhisattva archetypes. And they ask, he asks to these bodhisattvas about their gifts. And what we discover in the sutra, one of the most important gifts of a bodhisattva is a gift of fearlessness. The gift of not being afraid. One of the most important gifts of the bodhisattva. And this is actually not the only time that we see that this is important, that fearlessness is important in our practice. You know, you might see many stages of bodhisattva archetypes and even in Buddhas, uh, a hand position, we also know as a mudra, that reflects the, the same concept of fearlessness. You will see the, the left hand up like this, right? In palm facing forward and kind of at shoulder height. This is called the abhaya mudra or gesture of fearlessness. And it's a gesture that symbolizes reassurance and safety. You know, you can look this up on the internet, you'll see it on, on a Buddhist temple. And I bring this up because, as I said before, fear and uncertainty are one, if not the main thing that fuel our needs that come from karma. So what do the bodhisattvas and Buddhas are trying to tell us when they express the gift of fearlessness or when they raise their left hand? Why is it so important in our path of practice? 
And one of the main reasons for this is the relationship between fear and uncertainty and craving and wanting. You know, the way they are very tightly knit. Many years ago, I was in Mexico City uh, for the commemoration of the 400th anniversary of the first diplomatic mission from Japan to Europe. Now, of course, uh, they were traveling by boat and they um, left Japan and they had to cross uh, to, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. They did that through Mexico. And, and that wa that's why this commemoration was happening there. And I, I was at that time uh, there as a, as a way of tea, a shadow student for the Urasenke Tea School you know, from Japan. And one of the main events for this commemoration was a, a tea offering, a tea offering that was um, done at the altar of the same church that uh, was there, San Francisco Church was called, it is called, it's 400 years old, um, where actually these Japanese were baptized so they could see the Pope. And, uh, and this ceremony was done by Honsai um, Daisosho, who is a former head of the Urasenke Tea School. It's like a maximum tea master. Well, actually now it's his son, the Oyemoto, which is a person in, in that seat, but he was before him the main tea master, you know, the head of the, of the Urasenke School. And Daisosho is around 90 something. And, and you should see him, you know, he's been traveling the world for years promoting peace through a bowl of tea. You know, true bodhisattva, one of the most calm, frugal, and wise people I've ever met. So we were there in the church, and after the offering, they such said, well, I answer some questions. Um, full church. And they such was in the pulpit. And at one point, and I'll never forget this, the Bishop of Mexico said, well, we've been here together for some days now, and I can't help to notice that you're always smiling. Why is this? Why are you always smiling? And they social know his peacefulness and serenity said, oh, I smile because I'm not afraid. I smile because I'm not afraid. And that was a huge aha moment for, my, for me in my life, in my practice, which I'll always be grateful for today's social for it. Because it made me realize that I had to explore with more depth what that meant. Go further in understanding all the ways in which I don't trust myself, all the ways I don't trust the world, all the ways I don't trust my practice. You know? And this is, you know, why this brings, what is it that brings fear to my life? What is it that brings uneasiness, uncertainty, enhance, craving, want, need that arise from karma? Most of those needs that arise from fear, that arise from karma, is what reflect in those upper layers as a new iPhone. And that's why connecting with this gift or gesture of fearlessness is so important in our practice. Because if we work with our fears, if we can connect with abundance in our life, instead of abiding in scarcity, you know, uh, fear of abiding in scarcity, 
If we can do that, something will transform in our sense of need. You know, of always wanting, of this endless craving. So I think the way will not be difficult if we, we can do this. You know, by exploring our concerns, our worries, and the ways in which we do not feel at ease, we'll get a fundamental insight of why we need certain things, of why we want what we want when it is born from our karma, why we need more oxygen in our shampoo. In, in a world that's overburdened by consumerism and greed, you know, with natural resources being depleted and the division between human beings getting deeper and deeper, with all that happening, I think that working on our fears and therefore engaging in different ways with what we want and what we need is one of the most important things we can do right now. You know, letting the bodhisattva gift of fearlessness permeate our practice, permeate our life. And in that way, it is help us be less afraid. Connecting with abundance instead of scarcity and finding ease and balance in what is here right now in the present. You know, we might find that these are the most important antidotes to the needs and wants that arise from our karma. Attaining the way is not difficult. Just avoid being controlled by need. If you have neither fear or doubt, you'll thoroughly understand. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.